Welcome to the Investment Turnaround Podcast. In this series, Dr. Mariana Bosazan interviews world-renowned investors, scientists, and other personalities who share their solutions toward the sustainable transformation of our financial systems. Our guest today is Professor Dr. Dr. H.C. Hans-Joachim, or John Schenhuber. He's one of the most prominent German climate researchers and an outspoken critic of Donald Trump's climate policy. Among many functions, he's Director Emeritus of the Potsdam Institute for Climate Impact Research, PIK, Chair in Theoretical Physics at Potsdam University, and is Governing Board Chair of the Climate Kick. John has been a long-standing member of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, IPCC, which is also recipient of the Nobel Peace Prize. He served as principal advisor to top policymakers, including Angela Merkel, Manuel Barroso, and Pope Francis in the context of his encyclical Laudato Si. John, it is a great honor and a great privilege to have you on the Investment Vende podcast and welcome. Yeah, thanks a lot for inviting me. It's a pleasure for me. Thank you. You have, you're an amazing human being. I just gave a very short uh, overview of the many functions and activities that you're involved in. You are already uh, emerited, um, so to speak, from your various positions. Um, and how have you become a force for good in the world? What happened in your life that put you on your path? You could actually sit at home, enjoy your pension, and, um, <laughs> and take care of your grandchildren or other people's grandchildren. Why okay. are you such an active person in the world trying to save us? Okay. Whether I can self, say, so to speak. Yeah, whether I can save anybody, I don't know, but... Uh, at least I try to be in balance with myself, that is my responsibility, my empathy, my feelings, and of course my curiosity and insights. So first of all, I mean, I started to work and to study uh, in physics and mathematics, uh, developed a keen interest later in complex systems dynamics, nonlinearities, and so on. And this led me finally into the field of climate change, environmental systems, because where you see, of course, all types of uh, disruptive transitions and, and, and challenges. So I founded the Potsdam Institute for Climate Impact Research more than 25 years ago. And, uh, you know, this is a field which is developing very rapidly. And the science there is extremely exciting. So it's like discovering uh, the body of the Earth, the physiology of our planet, like 150 years ago or so on, people started to discover the physiology of the human body. It's very comparable, actually. So this was something which absorbed most of my energy and interest and I think we have together with a number of colleagues worldwide really pushed the frontier. So this is now one of the most active and important fields in science. And you know, because you asked me about my sort of um, becoming an emeritus, uh, if you are a scientist in an active and exciting field, 
you do not stop at the age of 65 or 68. I mean, many of my colleagues in physics, for example, in the National Academy of Sciences, we go on until we are 90 or something like that. So this is not a profession, it's a passion. So you just keep on doing it. But the other thing is that uh, the more I learned about the climate system at the global scale, at the regional scale, the more I felt the yeah, very grave responsibility we have to communicate our insights to the world at large, of course, through the media, but also to the main decision makers. And that means you build up relationships with important stakeholders like the German Chancellor, the Pope, and so on. And of course, this is a social capital, if you like, a capital of trust. And again, if you retire, uh, at a formal age, you do not throw away this social capital. Quite to the contrary, if you are not officially in charge of a major scientific institution anymore, in a way you are even liberated to speak your mind and heart and brain, whatever. So I think I simply have the responsibility to use the network I built and the relationships and to convey the message that yes, climate change is the biggest challenge of all in human history. And if we keep on doing what we have been doing since the Industrial Revolution, we will crash into a wall and we will actually make our civilization impossible. So given the insights, the the still existing drive to do research and the big responsibility. I mean, I just couldn't stop. Uh, it would be like abandoning a ship where you still can help to keep it afloat. Right. So I, I couldn't agree with you more. And it's not a question of um, a must. It's like a it's a purpose-driven mission in the world. It's just the integration Absolutely. of the head and the heart and a holistic approach to life. At the recent climate uh, conference in uh, Katowice, you stated, and I'm paraphrasing, that the format of our climate conference is not really working and we have potentially created a bubble that is busy with itself and doesn't really achieve the planetary carbon reduction goals that we must achieve in order to avert mm. the worst consequences which are of course uh, closely related to uh, achieving the staying below 1.5 which is already too much so our listeners are mostly investors entrepreneurs business people financial people who need to understand in in uh, in a simple way in simple terms what it is exactly that they could do to help mm. move the needle beyond what the governments and the UN and all of those people who have good intentions but don't have the means uh, to really move capital and make it happen. Mm. Uh, mm. So mm. what what can you tell us? How can we contribute? First of all, maybe mm. I'd like to summarize the latest IPCC report um, and um, the uh, Club of Rome report of which you're also a member. So that oh, in a way, what can we do? 
Mm-hmm. Within the first of all, investment turnaround. Yeah, first of all, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm a member of the so-called Coal Commission in Germany and we have to deliver by the 1st of February a report how to phase out uh, coal burning, actually, coal-powered sort of production generation of electricity. Uh, very soon, hopefully by 2030, let's see. And in this commission, of course, you are confronted with all the various interests because it's a civil society commission, which will make then a very strong recommendation, recommendation for the German government. And where, of course, you have the representatives of the, the workers, the trade unions, you have the industrial business associations, you have a few scientists, you have the NGOs from the environmental side, and where, of course, you learn how everybody's trying to grind their own eggs, uh, and I, as a scientist, have to try to give, as you said, a holistic and objective assessment of the situation. So what I would say first is what I would say to the trade unions, and I do say this, there are no jobs on a dead planet. Uh, it's obvious. Uh, if you if you just wreck our civilization by making the wrong decisions over the next 10, 20, 30 years, I mean, livelihoods will be destroyed all across the planet, world markets will collapse, and there is no need for factories and uh, labor uh, contributions and so on. So that's the one thing, what I would say to the entrepreneurs, the investors, uh, the business people is, the first law of capitalism is don't kill your customers. So, <laughs> because you know, this is a bad business principle because you will run out of business easily. And uh, that's precisely what I have in mind. So, clearly, if we want to have a thriving world economy, we just have to secure the uh, the, the life support systems on this planet, uh, clearly, that is water, clean air, but in particular, stable climate, of course. Uh, because if you go back in history, the only way our civilization could have been born, actually, starting 10,000 years ago, but we had an extremely, exceptionally stable window of, of climate. Uh, so. It's called the Holocene, so some 8,000 years ago so on, agriculture started to thrive. This was only possible in an extremely stable climatic situation. And this was a window of opportunity for humanity to emerge, actually, and culture to emerge. An accident, an incident, however you call it, just by chance. And we are now ruining, closing, actually, this window. And this could actually move into what we called a hothouse earth some time ago in a paper. But I would also say in the, in the shorter term, uh, if you are an investor, you simply have to look where your assets will produce return on investment uh, or whether you will have create stranded assets. Uh, 
And it's more or less clear that the world is going to transform. The question is, how quickly will it happen? So I would say investing in lignite coal, in oil drilling in the Arctic, also in nuclear energy. These are all things which are extremely risky now because the overall trend is simply against that. Whether this will happen fast enough to save the planet and stabilize the climate, we don't know. We have to do everything for that. But it's clear that these are not emerging markets where um, institutional investors or even, you know, uh, venture capitalists would like to invest there because you don't invest into the obsolete business cases. You invest, of course, in the emerging opportunities. Eh? So even if all these transformational moves uh, for investment will not in the end save our planet and the jury is still out, uh, then even if I would be just a selfish, greedy, smart investor, I would certainly look for things which are in line with the overall trends of consumers, you know, of business people, of startups. Uh, so I certainly would not invest in building an, another oil rig, but if I wouldn't care for the climate and so on, I would, for example, invest in digitalization, which again can help to make our world economy much more sustainable. Uh. So I think ideally you do something where you promise a, a big return on investment because you are part of the emerging digitalization market. But in order to keep your customers as well as investors and shareholders and even the governments happy, you would uh, have some green gloss over it, you know. So you would present it as something which is in principle at least in line with the sustainable development goals, uh, which are, of course, in a way, a compass for economy in the 21st century. Now, this sounds a little bit cynical, but even if you are a cynic and do this, you help to save the world. Uh, if you are now a non-cynical, non-selfish, uh, uh, nice investor, who also wants to do something really good, of course, you would go to where the biggest sustainability options are. That means you go to renewable energy, you go into a food system which is going beyond clearly uh, industrial agriculture. You would invest in preserving soils in Africa and making them fertile again and so on. I could just uh, come up with a list of hundreds or thousands of projects. Uh, but what I'm saying is basically, whether you are a cynic or a non-cynic person, if you are smart, you do not invest into the fossil industry. Yes, absolutely. And I personally believe that uh, cynicism is just a sign of, uh, well, giving up and not having the guts to really do this impossible, so to speak. So. I am to all up for really going for it and trying to find out what exactly it is that I can do today regardless and not give up. Being a hmm. cynical person is just, it doesn't help any, anybody in private life and in business anyways. 
so you are one of the main contributors to Laudato Si, the encyclical Pope uh, Francis also. And um, in it, I, I actually uh, counted the numbers. You can find 10 times the term integral ecology. I was just curious, uh -huh. does the term come from you or? Uh... No, no, this is definitely the Pope's invention. Okay. I mean, the Pope was certainly inspired by what the Pontifical Academy did in the years before the encyclical was drafted. Uh, you know, there were meetings with the Pope and the main messages were conveyed to Pope Francis. And uh, so you never know where a certain term, a certain terminology is born, really. But clearly the Pope loves to play with words, actually, uh, and to come up with new words. And so this is entirely his doing. I mean, we scientists made sure that everything is clearly in line with the latest state of the art. Uh, and uh, I'm not entitled to tell you the details about it. Uh, maybe in 100 years, historians will reconstruct all that. But uh, integral ecology really reflects, I think in the end, a very simple program. You know, Pope Francis took the name Francis uh, according to the, the, the big idol and saint of the Catholic Church, Franz, or Francis of Assisi, clearly, yeah, who in the end was something like an integral ecologist, yeah, because on the one hand he was led and driven by compassion with other human beings, in particular the, the weaker among us uh, and the people who are not so well endowed by heritage or whatever, or talent. So that was one part. The other was the compassion, the passion, actually the love for all living creatures. Uh, and if you bring these two things together, as you know, humanity and uh, the creation, if you like, when this makes up uh, integral ecology, it's as simple as that. That's wonderful because uh, we call ourselves integral investors. And, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and integral ecology is actually a term that has already been invented uh, way before Laudato Si was published. It uh, actually existed uh, by, it was actually published by a professor of also who is a um, um, scientist and integral theorist. Uh, theorist theorist, hmm. um, uh, Sean Espion Hargens, and that's based on integral theory by Ken Wilber, which is the foundation of what we do, which basically it does exactly um, what you just described. It integrates the interior dimensions of, you know, who we are, where are we coming from, uh, you know, as human beings, uh, psycho-spiritual dimensions, emotional intelligence, cognitive intelligence with what we see, what we're pre uh, presenting with the exterior the infrastructure, mm. what we're creating as human beings. So this is actually at the foundation of um, integral ecology in that sense. And also is the foundation of integral investing, which is based on the all quadrants, all lines, uh, all levels, all lines of, uh, of who we are as human beings. And, you know, we talk about humans and nature, but we are part of nature. So that's all one, uh, one ecological... Right. Yeah, it's the feeling you're part of a, a big, yeah. big system, of course, 
where all the small and the big things matter at the same time. And since I told you, I've worked now for 40 years in complex systems analysis, uh, where you know that uh, people often talk about the so-called butterfly effect, uh, you know, the flapping of the wings of one single butterfly could create a hurricane off the coast of New York, yeah? and that is true in a way, but also the reverse is true, that even a very, very big effort could just fall flat. Yeah? I call it the inverse butterfly effect, and you often see that in politics, actually, yeah? <laughs> maybe just in the UK right now, or maybe also in the United States. Yeah? And uh, so this understanding, or at least the attempt to understand these complex systems uh, is guiding us to yeah, just look in a different way at problems. And this is also overcoming, you know, the linear optimization approach we had in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, uh, when the world seemed to be such a simple place. Uh, you have a, just a feed-forward economy, you put in resources, talent, money, and in the end, prosperity uh, at the end of the pipeline uh, emerges. And this is complete nonsense, of course, uh, on a finite planet and also in finite societies. But we have learned it the hard way. This doesn't work. I mean, just comment on the integral ecology. I'm absolutely convinced that Pope Francis thinks he invented the term. But everybody uh, thinks so because you never know when a term really is uh, coined for the first time or where you may have heard it deliberately or uh, unconsciously or uh, whatever. So I think we all keep on reinventing things as part of the human family. And every invention is as important as the former ones, I would say. Yes, and we are always standing on the shoulders of those who were before us. And uh, hopefully evolution moves us a little bit um, further than before. Yeah, and so in, uh, during the 50th anniversary of the Club of Rome uh, in, that we celebrated together at the Vatican, you also, right. <laughs> you also supported the view that we are at the dawn of... Um, exponential tech and uh, artificial intelligence, and you agreed with the fact that we ain't seen nothing yet. Um, if mm. uh, this evolution looked to us uh, linear, we are becoming more aware to the fact and waking up to the fact that it's actually exponential. And uh, so what is your, your view on this? Personally, I believe that, unfortunately, and I'm not a cynic when I say that, I believe that humanity may we are actually in adaptation. We should move faster in adaptation, getting used to climate change and do the best we can to prevent the worst. Uh, however, I, I'm not sure that we will collectively arrive at the point where we pre will prevent the worst until you, you know, we go into areas that um, are really gonna be ugly. And so I personally mm -hmm. believe that the mind shift will not shift uh, early enough uh, in a critical level. It, to tip to mm. the point to prevent the worst, but we will probably have the opportunity to mm -hmm. use technology and exponential tech to um, go into adaptation and do the right thing faster than we would have uh, if uh, there weren't any exponential technology to support us. What is your mm. take on it? 
Yeah, this is a very difficult question because there are many ways how we could destroy our civilization. I mean, climate change is one way if it is not in any way sort of uh, managed and confined. Uh, but even if climate change would not exist, because CO2 would be a different molecule, uh, I mean, or the radiation, the laws of radiation would be different, uh, then I think we could destroy ourselves through artificial intelligence, of course. Yeah. And why? Uh, if you just look at the combination of synthetic biology, you know, with CRISPR techniques and so on, and neural networks, artificial deep machine learning, the two together create an extremely powerful way of innovation, clearly. But it could be so fast and accelerating that we have no chance actually to, to harness it in a way that it will provide benefits for the majority of the human, the human population. And I guess I mentioned this in Rome as well, if you add quantum computing, which I think will come along in 10 or 15 years uh, and will yeah, add three orders of magnitude uh, to our computing power, then this can be looked at in a very dystopian way because it will leave behind by the sheer uh, velocity of the development, most of the human population. I mean, I guess even among our stakeholders today, if you go to a parliament, uh, if you go to the CEOs of big companies, if you go to the faith leaders, even if you go to the universities, I think it's an extremely small number of people who can even imagine uh, this exponential or super exponential development which is ahead of us uh, and to tame it in a way that it is still serving the human enterprise, the human, the human quest uh, is an extremely tricky thing. So that's the dystopian thing and I think we should actually decelerate rather than accelerate the use of artificial intelligence and things like that. Uh, just in order to have a chance to understand what is going on and what we are doing. Uh? Because even myself, I mean, I, I was one of the people who for the first time worked with neural networks in the 1970s already, but we just played with it. We never thought it would become important. Uh? I have done, I've deeply sort of uh, uh, interacted with the principles of physics and mathematics and so on and tried to really learn what is going on and how it could be used. Even for myself it's very hard to catch up uh, with the development. Uh? So if we, if we just leave it to Silicon Valley or you know the Communist Party of China uh, in order to better observe uh, and regulate their people, I think this can just get out of hand completely. Yeah? So I think here we should rather decelerate than accelerate. But now I give you the utopian version of it, because if you look at it in a positive way, the advent and, and the emergence of artificial intelligence, quantum computing, synthetic biology, is actually providing it us with the most powerful tools that were ever developed in human history. Yeah? And 
On the other hand, we have the biggest challenge, challenges we ever faced in human history, like climate change and feeding 10 billion people and so on. Why not applying the most powerful tools to the most demanding and urgent challenges of humanity? Yeah? And this is what is lacking, I think, now, and, uh, and coming back to what a smart investor should do. You know, when I gave a talk last year in Vienna about, it was a world conference on transport and mobility, when everybody talked about artificial intelligence, but I think only a few percent of the projects which were presented tried to make mobility more sustainable. Huh? So it was all about entertainment, gadgets, you know, uh, acceleration, things like that. So if we would decide, and we can decide it at the government level, at the individual level, or at the investment level, if we would decide, we would direct most of the efforts and money and talent in artificial intelligence and machine learning towards sustainable development uh, to use those most powerful tools for making our planet sustainable in our society. When I think we could have a fairly quick and deep transformation and we could actually decarbonize the world by 2050 at the latest, actually to be in line with the Paris Agreement 1.5 uh, centigrade uh, guardrail, we need to decarbonize the world by 2040, actually. Yeah? So if we would unleash all these new innovations uh, and, and applications and so on, but direct them in particular to the sustainable development goals, then this would be a splendid success, of course, and actually could really help us to to save the world in time. Huh? Um, but I do not see it happening yet. I think these are two completely different communities so far. So the artificial intelligence people, uh, you know, the, the, the Amazon, the Googles of the world and so on. And then you have the tree huggers on the other side uh, who are in a way also afraid of new developments uh, and rather look backwards when forward and think the solution is to stand still, so to speak, or even to move back in history. Yeah? And these two worlds just do not shake hands yet. So I see myself in a way precisely at the borderline between these two universes. Yeah? I am absolutely passionate about preserving creation in the way we just described it uh, along the lines of Pope Francis. But I also think we should just take a chance and take the opportunity of these powerful tools developed. Uh. So artificial intelligence should not be developed just for its own sake. And at the same time, we should not just try to ignore that we are in a permanently and perpetually accelerating world. Uh. But bringing the two worlds together through smart investment, that probably would be the philosopher's stone in a way. Yeah? And, and it's actually, there is some good news there. I'm, um, I'm very closely connected to Silicon Valley where I lived for on and off for 30 years. 
So, and I am like you, an AI person. I studied AI when most people didn't even know that uh, what in computer science was. <laughs> and uh, so there is a lot uh, happening. Yeah, and I, yeah, yeah. that's what made computer science interesting to me, uh, meeting artificial intelligence back in the, um, in the late 70s. But I give you, but I give you an example. I mean, uh, here in Germany, when we have a skull commission and the phase out, the argument is often put forward well, with renewable energies, fluctuating sources, you know, volatility, wind, sun, and so on, we cannot have any stability in our electric grids and so on. No? This could be easily overcome by smarter technologies and in particular by adaptive management through artificial intelligence. Why shouldn't we have something like, if you call it an Apollo project, to derive within the next 10 years uh, softwares uh, as well as hardware requirements uh, and hardware conditions that could in any country of the world run the energy, the entire energy system on renewables, uh, for example. Uh, this would be a really interesting project. Uh, but it's actually think... um, um, John, back in, we came back from California in 2009 and a year later uh, I invested in it and my husband started a company, um, a demand response aggregator in Germany, the first German demand response for load balancing. And mm. uh, so we invested, we were bleeding edge and uh, we ended up selling on Enernoc, that is the world leader in load balancing. And uh, you know, the, uh, we actually had to give up because the government, everyone, uh, you know, uh, the SPD, you know, back then the Wirtschaftsminister actually, uh, yeah boycotted the uh, the uh, suggestions to the rule changes to the regulation uh, in order to really make it happen and it's just ridiculous yeah. we, um, so it actually happening the technology is there we are there we are totally committed to make it happen mm -hmm. but if the regulation the government the poli uh, politicians don't get it they don't understand they buy it yeah. like you said with the uh, brown coal with the uh, brown coal yeah. and yeah, but that is but it's a very interesting point because I, I'm aware of that several efforts were made. But now, 10 years later, people have learned it the hard way. But <laughs> on the one hand, in order to save our climate, we need to do something after Paris. You cannot just look the other way, of course. And the other thing is people have become aware, even the very conservative, parts of the government or the parties that digitalization is just such a big force uh, and so accelerating and changing everything. So I think now you could present again the equation which simply means one plus one makes two actually. Uh? So rapid digitalization plus energy, sustainable energy supply, it can be done, it's a simple formula and you have to make a renewed effort actually. I guess now people would be much more open suggestions like that and would be even willing to fund it uh, so i actually will make this proposal let's see yeah. uh, i will get further than you did uh, 10 years ago yeah and another thing that is actually happening in silicon valley which uh, we're very close to and regularly involved in and invest in uh, is what's happening along the X price, you know, the Singularity University and the Grand Global Challenges that are really massively, massively being uh, addressed by investors, billionaires. Uh, you know, you know that Elon Musk himself he sees artificial intelligence yeah. uh, more dangerous than nukes. 
and uh, also the X Prize, uh, several X Prizes that are have been called to uh, perform uh, carbon sequestration from the air right after the IPCC report came out. So there is a lot of hope, uh, and this is why you know I truly believe that um, exponential tech guided in the right direction and uh, you know getting involved in at the political political uh, political level to try to prevent uh, you know uh, it taking over just because they can um, you know signing up for the asylumar principles which we did you know in trying to control just like we did mm. you know, uh, bio uh, weapons uh, in but trying let me but let me add uh, uh, just uh, a word of caution here i mean I, I really do not believe that at the necessary scale we can extract uh, enough carbon from from free air by whatever chemical and so on uh, measures. But we can actually do this, but we will have to do it by strengthening the natural systems actually. Right. Yeah? The right forestry and land management and agricultural strategy actually we can bind and uh, extract enough carbon, I think. And this is often a systemic innovation uh, rather than a high-tech innovation. Uh. You need to convert an entire food industry into something more sustainable, for example. Or sometimes it's very simple things as an Australian who just received the Right Livelihood Award uh, last year, Tony Rinaldo, uh, he just demonstrated in Ethiopia, Somalia, but if you just treat the roots of the forests or the trees actually uh, in a different way with a simple knife, if you have just the right approach, you can reforest actually millions of hectares of land. So I would say, speaking as a theoretical physicist, often or sometimes the simple solutions are more important than the very sophisticated ones. Or sometimes you need sophisticated solution when the challenge seems very simple. And that's what you learn when you deal with complex systems for decades. It's a sense of humility, actually, yeah? because <laughs> the world out there is more complex and more simple than you think. And in every single instance, you have to think anew, actually. Yeah? The problem is I will have to leave very soon yep. now because I have actually now a, a talk with the Chancellery, which I must not miss, uh, and it, it is in the context of the Coal Commission. And of course we could talk forever, I guess, now, since we have started uh, to go into that field, but maybe we can chat another time also. Yeah. One last question for now. Uh, how do you want to be remembered? And what kind of impact do you want to have a leave in the world? <laughs> Actually, yeah, this is a fun question in a way because I was asked several times. And you may or may not know that, that I was one of the people, maybe the first one who took it really seriously to introduce this idea of the two degrees guardrail. Actually, first in talks with Angela Merkel and then became absorbed by the European Union and in the end made it to the Paris Agreement and of course well below two degrees as we know a scientist is where safety may be uh, guaranteed. So I, I just made this joke that on my tombstone actually there will be 
smaller when two degrees centigrade, you know, this <laughs> mathematical formula. And complaints can be sent to me when online <laughs> at that site. So, but uh, to be seriously in my last sentence on that, actually I have a 10 year old son uh, in, at my age and he's the sunshine of my life. And I want him to remember me as somebody who at least made a small contribution that he can lead a happy life. What a wonderful way to finish. Thank you so much for your time. I hope he will be able to lead a happy life just like all the children on this planet and many generations to come. God bless you and thank you so much for everything that you're doing. Bye-bye. Thank you. For more information on Professor Schenhuber, follow at P-I-K underscore Klima with K on Twitter. For more on Dr. Bosazan and the investment turnaround, visit investment-turnaround.com. We hope to hear you next time.